We've all either watched or heard about the play Hamilton, unless you've been living under a rock for like the last decade. Are you curious how old Alexander was when he became Treasury Secretary? 32. What about the age of Thomas Jefferson when he wrote the Declaration of Independence? 33. What about the aging statesman John Adams when he signed that declaration? Ripe old age of 40. Think about that. A bunch of guys in their mid to late 30s challenging the biggest superpower in the world and creating a completely new form of government. Curious about how that happened? Why were they bold enough to take those risks? Why didn't it happen before then? And what about that moment caught those millennial equivalents to do something so bold? Now, let's contrast that against our Senate today, where the average age is 64. Instead of a young, healthy family man driving the future direction of the country, we're currently being led by grandparents, or even great-grandparents, riding out their few remaining years into the sunset. And when you are near the end the things that are important change. It's natural. What I cared about in my 20s isn't what I care about now. Young voices mixed with old can be a great thing, but old voices in an echo chamber can cause stagnation. I'm KDO, and this is the, I'm the host of Curious KDO, a podcast where we talk about topics I'm curious about, ask questions, try to understand. The topics are random, because so am I, and if that's your style, I'd encourage you to subscribe and share what you're curious about. So I was curious about how we got into this position, how we moved from a country of youth, enthusiasm, challenging authority, not taking no for an answer, to a group of senior citizens meeting with only like-minded folks, begging for money for their next election, and holding on to power with two hands gripped super tight. Did you know that today we are more segmented than ever and look for ways to find voices similar to our own? We've lost the ability and the nature and the importance of debate. And look what it's done. Debate is viewed as the enemy. Instead of challenging thinking and listening to others in order to hear their point of view or even find a way to work together. Let's get the obvious out of the way. Did the founders get it 100% right? Hell no. I mean, speaking as a woman who didn't even have the right to vote when this country was first formed, uh, no. And basically, if you weren't a white male property owner, you weren't considered to have the same rights. This is something we keep arguing about today. But the benefits of youthful thinkers was they built clauses to allow for change, recognizing that nothing stays the same. Things will change, and so too it, what governs our country. They were smart enough to know they weren't smart enough to think of everything and designed a system and structure that could change and adapt. So when did it flip? When did the older generation seize power and hold on to it like a padlock around an iron chain? I was curious when we moved from senators in their 30s to an average in their 60s. In 1851, the average age for senators was ticked just over 50 years old. And before that, it had hovered around the mid-40s. And that average stayed in the 50s that way, really until 23, 2003, when it moved into the sixth decade and continues to climb. So life expectancy was a part of it. And as we live longer, so did people in key roles across the board. But that wasn't the whole story. What makes people in their 30s take big risks and make bold statements? Okay, so let's look at it. People in their 30s are optimistic, forward-thinking, more family-minded, 
and looking for investments in the future and have enough experience but aren't set in their ways. It's this unique teeter-totter place in life where you know things but you don't know everything, where you want to make the world a better place, realize you won't get it right, and then know you have to live with the results. According to a Today Show blog, 30-year-olds want stability and family. How is that different from folks in their mid-60s? Well, WebMD starts mentioning mental decline when people reach their 60s. Everything hurts, your eyes don't work, your blood pressure rises, your bladder capacity shrinks, and your teeth start to loosen and even fall out. Sounds like fun. With all that going on, thinking about the future and putting others' needs ahead of your own might be a little bit tough. Younger generations remember and are sometimes still living in the struggles of young people and their families. Those in their senior years think about people like them and protecting them in retirement. It's about keeping the status quo versus challenging it. It's about speed of change versus the molasses of the present. So how does this play out in government? Let's take spending. Did you know that while other countries were investing in healthcare, infrastructure, education, and advancement opportunities for their people, we are investing half of our budget each year into programs for seniors. Medicare is 15%, Medicaid is 10, and Social Security is 25. When you want to know about having an aging population in government and an aging population that donates to campaigns and votes, it's no surprise that half of the spending goes to the individuals who would benefit from it. Right, left, progressive, or conservative, the question for us should be about spending half of our budget on the 65 and older. And if we continue to do so, what challenges does that mean for our future? So countries outside of the U.S. have been more focused on changing their leaders and their legislative bodies. The Senate in France brought down the average age from 66 to 60. And while 60 isn't super young, it's a step in the right direction. In their National Assembly, 25% of its members are 40 or below. That represents a really loud voice. In the UK, the average MP is only 50, and they even have some that are 25. Um, But if you read the news, that 25-year-old person was met with challenges of what have you done or accomplished? So the question, is it important to have a lot of experiences or lots of ideas? Or should we have a healthy, healthy mix of both? So I've got four reasons why I think, you know, this happens in the U.S. with our elected officials, and I'm going to walk you through them. So first, there are no term limits. You can stay as long as you want, and the longer you're there, the more name recognition you have, the better you are at raising money, and the more embedded you are with the national party. So with nothing forcing you out, why would you leave? People you know, people with money like you, people in your state or district can recognize your name. That's hard to dislodge. Think about what would happen if we set term limits for the House at 10 terms, that's 20 years, and three terms for the Senate, that's 18. It's not ideal, but it would certainly require fresh people more consistently. Those in power would have to think about bringing up future candidates to fill their seats, something that happens at executive levels in organizations everywhere. Many states already do this, not allowing state senators to serve more than 12 years, and this would be easy to enact if we had national elections about things like this. But requiring the people with the jobs today to actively remove themselves using term limits is probably wishful thinking. Sure, you can fire me, no problem. Yeah, okay. Second, new people aren't really encouraged to run. When the parties drive funding and fundraising, they're more likely to bet on things they know versus the unknown they don't. 
And with advertising that could show someone of the same party saying negative things, if they run against each other in a primary, that would hurt worse than a general election. So instead of encouraging and supporting fresh talent and ideas into these races, they stick with who won last time and it keeps going and going. Predictable wins become the focus, not looking at the best people or the best ideas. Figuring out how to get money out of primaries and even general elections could open the door to more contenders and more potential candidates that are not the establishment. And with state leaders creating their own districts, making them safe, once many politicians get through the primary, they sail through the general election and return to their office in Washington. In 2020, the re-election rate for the Senate was 83% and 95% in the House. That's like the New York Giants winning 95% of the Super Bowls because they always get the first two picks in the draft. Um, For anyone that's not a Giants fan like me, they may want to change the system. That's retention rate should be a a public measure in figuring out what's an appropriate turnover each year. It's a measure that we should provide and look at to give a lens into the health of our institutions and future leaders. Third, money talks. People who have established their position can fundraise, and in some cases, insider trade. A lot easier than an unknown contender might be able to. That's how public politicians can make a salary of 175000 a year and have a net worth of $100 million, like Nancy Pelosi, or $40 million for Mitch McConnell. Like I said, I'm not biased either way. The rest of us had a job making 200000 but surprisingly had millions in our stock portfolio. We'd probably be investigated for some kind of insider trading but that's a different episode. Again, it's not party specific. It's about the system. They have official money, super PAC money that can be funded in secret and the national party's money. To break through and get attention, it often requires a lot of spending, making it hard for someone in their 30s to even have access to funds or be able to take time off work to make a run. In 2022, politicians spent almost $9 billion on elections, which is an insane number especially given the number is above how many are reelected each year. So they spent $9 billion to have 95% of their people reelected. What could we do with $9 billion that wasn't TV ads and social media ads? In 2018, the average Senate candidate spent between 15 and $19 million. What 40-year-old that's not named Zuckerberg do you know with that kind of money to raise and spend? So we need to find a way to get money out of politics in such a major way, because whether you believe it or not, money does influence the outcome and the dependency on it from politicians makes it so hard to not really move to the loudest and richest voice. So let's talk about what's probably the biggest of the four. So we got through, you know, term limits. We got through the ability for people to run. We got through embedded embedded groups that want to have the same group run over and over. The last is power. Power is an addictive drug. Once you have power, it's hard to walk away from. You control people. You control outcomes. You make decisions that matter. Your ego is tied up in being a person with a title to the point that you can't see your life without it. You also probably think at this point that you're the smartest person in the room, because everybody tells you that, and can't see anyone else doing it as well as you do. I was curious about this one and wanted to understand it a little bit more. So I found articles and studies about how power actually changes the brain and could even cause what they consider brain damage. One of the biggest defects is not being able to see things from other points of view. 
yeah, that doesn't sound familiar in politics nowadays, does it? Then because they're peripheral changes, their group of people get grouped into stereotypes. Have you ever heard a conversation about how millennials don't like to work hard or young people don't know the value of the dollar? Whether you're a college grad or not, have you heard people in their 60s talk about how they worked all summer to pay for school um, when it was 2000 a year and encourage students to try that for when the bill for school today tops 15000 a semester? It would really require you having a job where you make $32 an hour full-time after taxes to cover that? I mean, think about that. If people in power spend time with followers who think they are amazing and their brain changes to remove their ability to put themselves in other shoes, you have what we see today. An outdated and removed group of people making decisions for the rest of us that we scratch our heads and can't understand why and what they are focused on. And they really don't solve big problems. So what can we do about it? How can we change this? There are lots of groups trying to get young people to vote and finding ways to make voting easier. We likely need to figure out how to get money out of politics and limit the campaign time. They do this in some countries and only allow 90 days of campaigning, which would hurt television and social media advertising, but oh well. I'm sure we would all be in favor of a structured three-month campaign instead of these two to three-year long journeys that never seem to end. And once an election is done, they're right on to the next. We need to make sure the primaries are easy to enter and fair to allow for multiple candidates to choose from and give people options. We probably need to have term limits like we do for president and not have people make a career as a politician, but serve and get out. Or a mandatory age. We have a minimum age for some elected officials, so why not a maximum? You reach 65 and you're retired and done. Bye-bye. Retire with your family and give someone else a chance to make a difference. You know, the story of Hamilton connected with people because it was a story many of us didn't know. It was about a young group of idealists who fought and changed everything to create a country based on ideas and values. They were young, ambitious, flawed, and real, but they were willing to take a leap on something that supported their ideas and worked to wrestle together to figure out what it means. They had open debates, worked with each other, didn't feel like the opposition party was evil, maybe just uninformed. It feels like we've resigned to having senior citizens we wouldn't allow to have a driver's license to plan our future as a country and need to find a way to change it. On a total side note, I took the day off work one afternoon so my mother-in-law and I could watch Hamilton when it came out on Disney. I had only heard it was good. I read the biography the summer before, so, you know, that was really what I knew. And we're sitting there. We have a drink. We're sitting on the couch. And after about 10 minutes, she turns to me and says, um, do you think they're going to sing the whole time? I responded, I guess so. Yep. Neither of us knew they sang the entire time. Didn't know it was a musical. Whoops. Still good, though. So what do you think? Should we think differently about the age of the people in power? And if so, what can we do structurally to change it? I'm really curious about your thoughts. Connect with me at CuriousKDO at gmail.com or on Instagram at Curious underscore KDO. I'll leave you with an Alexander Hamilton quote from the musical. And if you haven't read the biography that the play was based on, I would 100% recommend it because it's fascinating. I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry. And I'm not throwing away my shot. Can't wait to see what the young, scrappy, hungry future holds for us. 